Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, a look at how journalism has changed. We spend a lot of time on this podcast and at CGR looking at big issues of journalism and how we need to rethink coverage and how we need to think differently and what needs to be done differently and how things used to be done in the past. This is a little bit of a, a departure because we're going to look at physically how do people used to do things that were different than now. There's some crazy, amazing stories here. And it it just kept raising the question in my mind about you know what is it like to be a journalist now versus what it w- what it's been like over the last few decades. Is it harder? Um, it's certainly different, um, but it really got me thinking about um, you know h- how we go about doing what we do and what we've lost as we've added so much other work to what what's the journalistic job. So we're joined this week first by my colleague Amanda Dara, who is a CJR fellow who wrote a piece that you should read that's on CJR now about these changes in how people filed their stories over the decades. Hello, Amanda. Hi, thanks for having me. And we're joined by Ed Kozner, who has had um, an amazingly illustrative, illustrative career in journalism from Newsweek editor in the late 70s to New York Magazine editor. It's a long stretch, like from 80 to 93, right, Ed? That's correct. Esquire editor, New York Daily News. And Ed has like some of these crazy stories in, in this piece that Amanda did, one of which is about how, I guess, when you were at Newsweek, you used flight attendants to ferry stories from one place to another? Yes. Uh, in those days, the, during the Watergate hearings, the House committee hearings and the Senate hearings, uh, there were transcripts made, and there were also transcripts of the Watergate tapes that were released to those committees. And the problem was that we were in New York and the transcripts were in Washington. Uh, And of course, we couldn't uh, send audio or video or anything like that. It was the physical transcripts. So the problem was, how do you get the transcripts from Washington to the editors in New York early in the morning so that they would have time to read them by the time we got and had had our uh, story conferences starting around 10 o'clock in the morning. And the solution was an editorial assistant in Washington to go out to National Airport, as it was then called, and find a stewardess, as they were then called, (laughs) uh, for Eastern Airlines or National, the late flights. Uh, They'd Xerox copies of the transcripts, and the person would go out to the airport find a flight attendant, perhaps give her 20 bucks, and ask her to carry the transcripts. And at LaGuardia, a Newsweek editorial assistant would be waiting to meet the plane, and the stew would give the package to the attendant. And that person would then uh, distribute the uh, Xeroxes to the doorsteps of the editors in Manhattan. And uh, when we'd get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, there would be the manila envelope, and we'd each uh, read our portion, and then we'd go into the office and begin the process of figuring out what we were going to do that week on the Watergate story. Who came up with this idea? 
I think the Washington Bureau did. I don't think in New York we would have known to do that. It was uh, as it was a big uh, answer to, for us for what would have otherwise been an impossible problem. You know, those of us now, you know, hearing that story, we think, wow, that is some crazy ingenuity and some crazy, like, just a ton of work to get to get the job done. But there's also something that sounds like lovely and containable about the whole thing. You know what I mean? Oh, exactly. You know, the world with the journalistic world, certainly for Newsmag, even for daily papers, but for news magazines, we were coming out once a week. And uh, the job was to figure out what that story, I'm talking about the Watergate period, what the story should be, which was often the cover story. Now, sometimes the stories changed uh, on Saturday, which was closing day. Uh, The Saturday Night Massacre happened in the afternoon on Saturday, and we tore up the the whole magazine, whole front of the magazine, and changed the cover. Uh, But it was a one, you were figuring out one story or one set of stories each week. Now, the people who are working now are competing on, with, uh, with their fellows uh, who are posting stories online at all hours of the day and night. So what we were doing uh, was uh, our contrivance was in a much simpler world. Yeah. And there's a certain kind of sweet innocence about it. You're right. When you look at the the people working now, especially younger reporters, and see all of the demands on their time from, you know, not only are they filing all the time for the for the digital version of their publications, but they're on. I mean, I think about myself, and I'm not a young <laughs> one of these people, but, like, the, the number of things that I check and the number of ways that people get in touch with me, whether it's Twitter, text, email, voice, Facebook, Instagram. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. And I do sort of wonder, like, what the impact of that is in the way that we tell stories and in the way that we guarantee the accuracy of stories. Well, I'm very, I'm very, very impressed, especially the uh, New York Times and the Washington Post coverage of Trump, because they're dealing with the same kind of story, in a sense. Yeah that there's a new installment every half hour, Mm. uh, and they're working in the conditions that you've just described. And I think the level of accuracy and coherence is fantastic. Mm -hmm. I mean, it makes what we did, which we thought was a Herculean effort, (laughs) it makes it look like uh, minor league baseball, you know. And they also go on television. Yeah and Chrome Dome on MSNBC every afternoon. Yeah. I mean, people just basically work 24 hours a day, right? I mean, they the last thing they do before they go to bed is check email and Twitter, and then that's the first thing they do when they get up in the morning. Was that the way? Did you live that way, too? I mean, you had a manila only envelope. During, only during the Watergate period. Uh-huh. In the Watergate period, we were working from 6 o'clock in the morning and, You'd get finished in the office and go home, and the phone would ring, and there'd be a new wrinkle. And then you had a manila envelope at your um, outside your door when you got up in the morning. But there were also calls about developments. You know, I mean, the transcripts were only part of the reporting of the story, and uh, so we used to work. uh, We worked very, very long hours. Uh, I remember working very late, and uh, I was watching the television. And they were showing uh, excerpts from the House committee hearing. 
and I was sort of dozing off. And Congressman Sandman from New Jersey, uh, who was a staunch Nixon supporter on the committee, suddenly he's waving a copy of Newsweek. <laughs> and he said, and Newsweek says he thought he had caught us in some era, which turned out not to be the case. Yeah. But it was it was quite a shock to be awakened from your doze with a congressman waving your magazine in your face. Ed, you and I, in our earlier conversations, have talked about how not having to compete against cable with no internet in a, in a time when a weekly magazine could really break news acted as kind of a stopgap. And I wonder whether that helped imbue the work with thought and nuance in a way as well. Oh, of course, because you had big piles of material and you had uh, a significant amount of time to ponder it. Tell, uh, tell our listeners just, just quickly how that whole system worked, because it was in place for decades. Yeah, well, the news magazines were, had a, a division of labor like a beehive. Uh, the reporting was essentially done by correspondents in the domestic bureaus, and Newsweek had maybe 10 domestic bureaus and another eight or nine foreign bureaus all around the world. And then, uh, middle of the week, the correspondents would begin sending in their research. They would write stories, which we called files, and they would sometimes be 20 or 25 pages with all the kind of color and quotes that news magazines used to like to have in the stories. Then you'd also get, if you were the writer in New York, writing the stories. You were essentially a rewrite man. There was only one woman writer at the time. And you'd get a big bunch of these files. Sometimes if it was a roundup story, you'd get files from eight or nine different bureaus. And then the researcher who would assist you, who was in those days, a woman, a young woman, uh, would give you a big pile of clippings. So you take this big mass of stuff and essentially boil it down. And you'd have a couple of days in general to digest the stuff and write it. Although we would also crash covers right on deadline where you sometimes work through the night and write the story. And yes, yeah, so there was a lot of time to think about it and to d discuss it with colleagues. In the news magazine system, it would first be edited by the senior editor of your department. He would then send his edit up to the top editors. The top editors would sometimes massage it. Sometimes they'd bounce it and send it back. When they were done, the fact checkers would take it. And uh, at the end of the day, at the end of the week rather, Newsweek would digest all this effort into about 60 or 70,000 words, and that was the magazine. So it was a huge extractive effort. What, what is your sense of um, how much of the stuff in the magazine people were learning for the first time? In other words... Oh, a great deal, uh -huh. a great deal. Because uh, you remember, I mean, I'm going back to the time that I was working there, which was the 60s and the 70s. What you had was you had uh, three uh, nightly newscasts, which had been expanded to a half hour. Uh, you had Time Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report. 
you had uh, the major papers. Uh, the Times was an international paper. Uh, papers like the Chicago Tribune and the L.A. Times had a few uh, foreign bureaus. Uh, the Washington Post was much more locally oriented until the uh, the Kennedy period, really. So the news magazines were a, a very essential source of information, and people didn't really have a lot of other information. I think this is one of the hardest things about being a news reporter right now, which is that you pretty much have to assume that almost that, that a good chunk of what you're doing people know already know something about or at least they've heard of it or they've seen a reference to it and it just makes the bar really high in terms of how you approach how you approach stories yeah but we also had a high bar because we had direct competition right time and newsweek were in direct competition yeah yeah. uh and there was very aside from the from the uh, the three evening newscasts there was no other I mean, in New York, the Daily News and the Daily Mirror were in competition. But there was no other direct head-to-head competition like that. So not only were we uh, worried about what the readers knew or were bored with, we were very competitive about our our opposition. Uh, And Time referred to Newsweek as Brand X. Mm-hmm. And made believe that they didn't pay attention to what we had in the magazine, but they did. That's funny because I, I, I was at the Wall Street Journal for about a decade, and they called the New York Times Brand X. Yeah, that's right. I know your name. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and then you told me, Ed, how when the story happened in New York, how it kind of flipped the whole process on its head. And I wonder how how that affected things. One of the anomalies of the news magazine uh, system was that they didn't have any real reporters in New York. You had to report it yourself. And I had to do a cover story on uh, the controversy over Bill Manchester's book on Jack Kennedy, which was called The Death of Lancer, which was supposedly a um, an authorized book because they made the family available to Manchester. But then when they saw the manuscript, they were horrified because there were several anecdotes that they thought were reflected badly on Jackie Kennedy and so on. Dick Goodwin was kind of the heavyweight for the Kennedys. He was like the Michael Cohn of <laughs> of the Kennedys, except he was a lot more competent than Michael Cohn. And he was his task was to spin the story uh, in the Kennedys' favor because they were getting a lot of flack for uh, going after this journalist. No one had actually seen what Manchester had in his book that they were objecting to. So on Friday night, which is the time the cover story should be finished, I had nothing really that was good. And my phone rang and his voice said, Ed, Dick Goodwin, as if he was my best friend. He says, I'm over at Bobby's apartment in the U.N. Plaza, and I'd like to talk to you. Think you could come over? I almost broke my neck running out of the office. (laughs) And I got over there. He was sitting on the sofa drinking cognac. It was like, now it's like 11 o'clock at night. So I said, oh, Dick, you have the manuscript there. He says, yeah, I'd like to read you a few parts. I said, well, I'd really like to look at it. He said, well, I can't let you look at it. So we sat there for about an hour, and he read 
the offending paragraphs. One was that Jackie Kennedy on the day of the funeral looked in the mirror as she was getting dressed and saw that she developed lines around her eyes and her mouth that she thought hadn't been there before, which the Kennedys thought was offensive, but it seemed to be a, a sympathetic thing. Anyway, uh, I got out of there about one o'clock in the morning mm. and went back to the office <laughs> and wrote the story in the middle of the night. And you you left the Daily News in 2004? Yes. Um, so have you been, what have you, what have you been up to since then? Are you, are you? Oh, still... I retired then and I uh, wrote a memoir. Yes. Called this news to me about my checkered career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I started writing book reviews. Mm-hmm. And so I've written about 110 book reviews for your alma mater, the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. And I've also written for the New York Review of Books and uh, Commentary Magazine. Uh, and it's a wonderful way to uh, keep my hand in. And I learn a lot. You still have pangs when stuff happens? You think, well, you think like, wow, that must be amazing. Only be... once in a while. Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't have any for years. And then, of course, Trump gave me many pangs. <laughs> and I still... I still have them. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, part of the, I mean, part of uh, my feelings were that I had been very fortunate in that I was at Newsweek for Watergate and all the mm-hmm. all the stuff that happened in the '60s and the '70s. Uh, I was at New York Magazine when all the great stuff happened in the '80s and the '90s mm-hmm. in New York, and then when I went to the Daily News. Uh, I had the uh, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq. You were there for nine uh, eleven, right? I we were there for nine eleven. We yeah. put out a great, great paper, yeah. and only lost the Pulitzer Prize for Spot News to the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal got blown <laughs> out of its offices. Now, now, that's not the way I would see it. That was such an extraordinary thing. Yeah, no, no, that yes. that they had to get the. Uh, the spot news thing, yeah. uh, but we put we put out a great paper, yeah. and now I'm a bystander in the Trump story. Yeah, well, it's been great to talk to you. Well, I've enjoyed it too. Good luck with this. So, what do you talk to a lot of people and put together a a oh, podcast? Is that this it? podcast is just you, Ed? Oh, oh, oh it's I'm honorary. Fine. I don't know if you remember. I told you that my parents met working for you. You no, know, you didn't tell me that. <laughs> was your father Brad? No, my my uncle was Brad. My dad's brother. Oh yes, because I I looked at your name and then I it, it, uh, a bell went off in the back of my head. I said, "This person comes from a media family." Did you did you work with Brad much? No, no, no. no. no but I spoke he with t- he was at Time, right? He, he was at Time and Life, life and people. Yeah. He was a, he, so he was what? A loose loose guy. Yeah. He so, did. what was the relation? So, how did he? What was Ed's role in in your parents' meeting? Yes. So, Ed, do you remember a guy called Denny Crimmins? Oh yeah, sure. So, my mom came over from England and got a job as Denny Crimmins' assistant, and Denny was close friends with my dad and hired him to come up and work on an advertorial for you guys. Dad was a graphics designer and photographer. 
And oh, wow. the courier lost the negatives, and dad, <laughs> <laughs> dad had to stay the night in New York instead of going back to Philadelphia. <laughs> and so he asked my mom out. Uh, well, those were great. Those were great days, and there was a wonderful, wonderful, sophisticated group of people who worked at both Time and Newsweek, and uh, both on the ad side and the and the uh, editorial side. Well, Ed, thank you so much for coming on. It's great to talk to you. It's so fun to talk to you again. Thank Super. you. Well, good luck with the rest of it. Thank you. So you can read uh, Amanda's story that. Um, Ed Kozner is quoted in in CJR. Uh, Amanda, it seemed like what what a sort of super fun like thing to go talk to these people who have worked you know for decades and decades. And was it fun to do? It was incredibly fun to do. You know what? This piece ended up kind of being like a love letter uh-huh. to journalism and to people who love doing it. A few things that, that struck me about it. One was just the incredible ingenuity. Of people, and I sort of wonder whether we have that now. Like, I mean, because I actually, frankly, I see it once in a while with especially younger writers who'll be like, "Okay, we have a roadblock," and they're like, "Oh, I don't know. It's a roadblock. What are we going to do?" And, right. and like, "All right, well, let's come up with another plan. Let's like, come let's, up with let's, another plan. Let's sort of be creative about this." And I think our skill set now is different. Our skill set isn't so much how do I solve a problem and get the story. Even in, even in the filing of the story, but it's more like, how do I deal with this deluge? Like I'm I'm in the middle of a torrential information storm every minute of every day, and just sort of processing that and and sorting through that is base has basically become the job. You know, it's interesting because Ed talked to me about his early days as a night rewrite boy at the New York Post. And basically, he called it a confectionery store. Like, he would have to chop up old stories and try to come up with something new. Mm -hmm. See if they could get anyone to answer the the phone at 2 in the morning. This push to try and come up with new information, whereas now it's just trying to stay on your feet, right, as it washes over you, sometimes. Yeah, I mean, we can be overly nostalgic about this stuff. Um, But I do wonder... After talking to, and you talked to a bunch of, of people who, you know, went, went to the top of their profession, but were telling you stories on how they just managed to pull this stuff off. Do you think that, that in some ways that the, they were better at the craft than we are? I think that there was collective inventiveness mm-hmm. and imagination. Like how, even later on, like how are we going to splice this one computer into this one telephone line in this hotel Mm -hmm. in Somalia that's moving fast enough to move our photographs out? Let's figure it out together and we'll all send our photos out, right? Like it's a, it's different. Um, It's a different problem to have to solve that requires a lot of ingenuity, right? Something that I think is true is it's a less reactive kind of journalism. Yeah, it makes me um, ashamed of the times I'm like, well, I'm not getting Wi-Fi, so screw it. I'm not going to work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Um, anyway, it was a great piece. Um, it's Thank called you. On Deadline on CGR.org. Um, read it there and read everything else we're up to. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week.